We acknowledge that we meet and work on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And welcome to 3CR Breakfast. And it's a cool and kind of foggy morning out there. It's kind of lovely, but uh, I'm sure if you're driving in the country, it's a bit challenging driving in the fog. And it's um, June the 6th already. And Radiocon coming up too. Yeah, June the 6th, starting off winter cold. Um, hi, I'm Edwin, if it's a new voice on the waves. Yes, and I'm Judith, and we're looking for, I mean, Nick will be in shortly, but uh, yeah, so welcome to 3CR Bricky. So what's coming up this morning? Um, well, first off, we've got uh, me, and I'm going to trial a new little segment I'm going with. It's a bit of a critique on music, so we're going to be doing some breakdown and analysis, so oh, I that hope that'll be exciting. Like fun. I'm looking forward to uh, that. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm sure it'll be great. And then late after eight, we have our, our monthly segment with um, Tim Jones from La Trobe University, and he's going to be looking at the Religious Freedom Review today, among other things. Always full of surprises, Tim. It's it's always really special. We look forward to having him on first uh, Wednesday of the month. And um, we also have the um, president of the Rational Society, uh, Meredith Doig, and she'll have a chat with us about some of the campaigns she's going around with, so that should be fun as well. Yes, fantastic. And I'm wondering if she's riding on her motorcycle. We'll ask her. (laughs) We'll ask her when she comes on. And uh, also we'll be speaking with Miranda Kay, who's... um, at the University of Technology, Sydney, and uh, she's a professor in family law, professor, sorry, but she's a senior lecturer in family law, and she'll be talking about the proposed merger of the Federal Circuit Court and the Family Court that was uh, in the news last week, lots of things to be concerned about there, I think. And also before then, we're going to be talking with uh, Regina Shevins from... Massey University in New Zealand. She's been doing a lot of work in the Pacific around responsible tourism. So if anyone's thinking of, you know, avoiding the cold here in Melbourne (laughs) and looking at one of those islands, she'll give you an idea what to look for if you're wanting to travel (laughs) sustainably and ethically. Talking about that, I actually got a text from my ex-principal the other day with, hello, from Tuscany. Oh, unfair. (laughs) Unfair. (laughs) You're not allowed. (laughs) He's escaped Australia for Italy. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I guess, all right, we'll jump into the first bit. So the first bit is um, my first attempt at this segment. So I hope you enjoy this. It's called Songs of Satire. Still working on the name. We'll figure out whether it works or not. But um, the first song is Common People. So I hope you enjoy. But she didn't. And that was Common People by 1995 band Pulp. I'm Idun Jeffrey, and you're listening to Songs of Satire, breaking down the meaning behind the songs. This week's song, Common People, follows the narrative of young Jarvis Cocker, the lead singer's flirtations with the young woman, of polar class and situation. The result is a scathing critique of class separation and an exploration into the working class tragedy. 
Produced in 1995, the song follows in footsteps of bands like Skins and Pins, The Clash, and The Pet Shop Boys. In its deliberately grunge style, it really speaks to its era as a critique of modern life and its inadequacies. Satirizing observations of the everyday, it looks at the ludicrous nature of middle-class life with this weird mix of hardships of economic instability and then these vapid attempts to try and escape it through empty distractions. It's a twisted anthem of the common people, as it combines a poppy backbeat and keyboard synth with lyrics that expose a darker underbelly of the everyday, and forms a really complex piece of art. Most importantly, I think, it centers around a loss of passion and power within the class system, and the dissatisfaction that rises from it. So we begin the meeting with class opposites, the girl from Greece, who is loaded, whilst the singer, Jarvis Cocker, is from working stock. And immediately the divide is apparent, with this contrast of their positions within society being the free and the trapped. The girl from Greece is free. Charged on a whim to live and do whatever common people do, her upper-class wealth gives her the scope to be frivolous. She is autonomous from her choice of education down to the drink she buys for the two of them. Jarvis supposedly reflects the working class as trapped. Having no meaning or control, nowhere to go, he exposes the cyclic nature of his class, and the music video shows this with repetitive footage of the everyday, little mundane tasks such as shopping in suburbia, which never seem to end. Without these limits, the girl from Greece doesn't really value her privilege. Her desire to experience common people becomes the most recent in a string of uh, passing fads. A hobby of hers, the condensation is palpable as she tokenizes people's lives wanting to live and do and sleep with common people. And the irony is not missed as her effort to fit in, to be common, merely demonstrates her privilege. This extends the song to really look at the institutionalized hierarchy that the money really affords her, giving her power over Jarvis, and barring her from any understanding of the common man. Any empathy exercises lost on her as privilege bars her from being able to understand or comprehend the struggles of economic instability. Instead, she thinks it's all a laugh, her laughter becoming malicious, and the division between class fostering this naivety and misunderstanding. This critique leaves the affluent girl from Greece arrogant of her power and the sit- and Jarvis opposingly bitter. The song then concludes itself by looking at how this power and privilege then affects the human condition and rorts the individual. So for the upper class, it's this arrogance, unable to fathom existence outside of expensive nightclubs and la- luxury. For the working class, it's bitterness, born out of the desperation that traps working class on a conveyor belt of renting a flat, cutting your hair and getting a job, constantly on repeat. However, working class doesn't just remain the victim of privilege in this piece. Whilst lacking in opportunities, it is suggested that the choice not to challenge their status sustains its position. Purposely choosing ignorance, working class pretends, you know, chooses to pretend you never went to school, swapping education to smoke some cigarettes and play some pool, and these act as empty, vapid and unfulfilling distractions. The girl from Greece remains free to follow education and love, while working class are left to watch their lives slide out of view. And this is none better said than in the nullifying statement that once all the distractions of dancing and drinking fades, Jarvis is left lying in bed watching roaches climb the wall. A sense of numbness of this life and home falling apart, which concludes his bitterness. The separation between them is also only shown to breed only cynicism, hatred and dissatisfaction within the system. The only redemption for the girl from Greece is that she shares in this dissatisfaction. Whilst her perception of the working class is insulting, romanticizing the simple domestic life, she still seeks escapism through Jarvis in the same way that he does through her. Jarvis may be limited to the souped-up supermarkets of suburbia, dreaming of the nightclub and riches, but the tourist exists on the flip side, her own situation equally inadequate, leaving them both tourists of their own world, of the other's world. And this leaves the song with the suggestion 
that dissatisfaction is ultimately present throughout all classes and opens up the question, what is this needed to create lasting satisfaction? Is it in the relationships that we try to forge, that Jarvis and the girl from Greece are trying to forge, that love? Is it empathy between the classes and differing backgrounds to try and dispel arrogance and foster some sense of community? Is it education rather than ignorance? Is it up to us to free ourselves in a society that actively disenfranchises us through knowledge? Whatever it is, and I open it up to you because these are all my opinions, um, the song shows the drudgery of everyday life, and as such, as an, as an expose, I think it gives us as an audience a motivation for change. The girl from Greece may be vapid, but Jarvis's own life, uh, own life translates only to anger and frustration at our current system, and whilst cathartic, at its core it is useless. The common life full of cigarettes is in no way better from the girl's life of nightclubs. It's all vain and superficial, and it's devoid of passion. So we owe it to ourselves to be reaching for education, empathy, love and opportunities, and not to get stuck in these systems of automation of class, living almost in isolation. And that's why I think the piece is truly inspired. It's a bopping pop song with some really provoking lyrical satire and a banger music video, which I strongly suggest you take time to check out. However, as we are limited to the airwaves, here's the song Full For You Now. I was Aiden Jeffrey.
And that was uh, Common People by the band Pulp, 1995. Yeah, what fun. Dance anthem, I hear. Dance anthem, indeed. Yeah. And uh, look, if you're just getting ready to go out, it's it's a little warmer today. It's going, maximum's going to be 18. There wasn't ice on the windshield, but I can see it coming. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so um, just keep that in mind. But still, you know, rug up, keep warm for sure. But it will be cooler later in the week. Now, if you're wanting to avoid that um, cool weather mm. <laughs> and head off to kind of warmer climbs, oh, that's indeed. a nice old-fashioned word, wasn't it? Climbs, I like that. Yeah, yeah. Nice, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you might be thinking of a Pacific island. And um, a couple of months ago now, there was a conference here in uh, Melbourne on new geographies. And um, Regina Scavens from Matthew University spoke, and she does a lot of research on tourism, particularly in the Pacific Islands area. And she's also interested, particularly interested in sustainable tourism. I think it's fair to say that there's been a lot of critique and criticism of tourism and the way people mm. are treated, and she certainly acknowledged that, but she also had some good stories too. So um, I was interested in her work, and I began by asking about her background. I've been working at Massey University in development studies since 1995 and I've been looking in that time mainly at sustainable livelihood options for communities in poorer parts of the world, most recently focusing on the South Pacific, especially Fiji, Samoa and Vanuatu. The, one of your areas then is tourism. Yes, it's been the main focus, really, for what I've been doing for the last 15 years. And so I've looked at everything from small-scale tourism initiatives with a lot of local control, such as beach valets in Samoa, through to the big um, multinational controlled resorts and hotels uh, on the Coral Coast in Fiji, looking at corporate social responsibility in those hotels. What are you seeing about the impact of tourism in these communities? Is is it good? Is it bad? Is it somewhere in between? I think the somewhere in between is a good way of summarising things. Certainly I would challenge those who say that it's all bad, but I think it's important to acknowledge that some of the criticisms that have been made about tourism and the reasons why people think it can cause inequality or can certainly entrench inequality are valid. So when you get large hotel chains controlling a lot of tourism development, they tend to buy in luxury products, they tend to be very keen on employing management that's expatriate, then the profits go offshore. Also a lot of the products that they use uh, will be imported from Australia and New Zealand, that's great for our economies but not so great for Pacific Island economies, so you don't get that, those sort of multiplier effects in the local economy. So those are some of the negative things and are there moves to counter those? Yes, some of the companies themselves are driving those initiatives through their corporate social responsibility, trying to build closer connections to the agriculture sector and purchase more products locally. Sometimes they're actively helping farmers upskill or to grow certain types of crops like lettuce or herbs that are used a lot in hotel kitchens, so that's great. But I think even better is seeing some initiatives where hotel managers occasionally mentor indigenous business people that might want to, for example, start up a taxi business or their own tour that attracts tourists from the resorts. So those types of things can make a real difference and help local people not just be the cheap labour 
at a hotel but have again more control over their own enterprises, more autonomy and more ability to maximise benefits from the tourism sector. Well a few years ago Sonasali Resort, the manager there worked really nicely um, to help the community of the landowning community from down the road to set up Naisali taxis. Sorry, where is that? This is on the Coral Coast in Fiji. And there was, um, yeah, so the landowners were really excited to be able to have their own taxi business that they could, they had the sole rights to use their taxi stand outside the resort, but they could also develop their own business opportunities through promoting their um, business and other avenues and taking tourists on tours and so forth, not just doing like airport transfers. And can you give me another example that might be a little bit different from that one? Uh, I think Uprising Resort, which is in the area around Pacific Harbour in Fiji. Uprising Uprising Resort is a very interesting example of an initiative that was set up in order to try and provide jobs for young unemployed people locally and so they didn't necessarily employ people with the best CVs but anyone who was willing to work hard and give it a go they would have the chance for some upskilling. With that they also helped uh, set up a jungle trek operation that a nearby community had a beautiful forest with a waterfall and an opportunity for rafting and they, um, the management of Uprising Resort helped develop Jungle Trek which was a business that again was community controlled but attracted visitors from the resort. But the environment has remained intact? Yes, that's a small scale initiative. They've done it in an environmentally friendly way, a respectful way but they've also thought about they're employed as guides, work there something like two days a week. They rotate then so that they've still got time to work on their family plantations as well by ensuring so that the young embedded in the local economy and their local society. And I had some really good feedback from local elders, I guess you'd call them, respected members of the community who said, oh, these young people now, they're... They're wonderful. They, they might only be working in that jungle treat business a couple of days a week, but if there's an important community event such as a funeral, they'll make an economic contribution to that now. They're really committed to their community. And I think the environmental issues are more often associated with the large-scale resorts, even though all of them will be very careful about some of their environmental factors, for example, as everyone does around the world now, encouraging guests to reuse their towels or not have their bed linen changed daily. But that saves the money, it saves the resort's money as well. More important is actually thinking about things like what's happening with their wastewater and how much fresh water are they using. Are they um, emitting anything into the marine environment which damages the food sources for communities living nearby. These are things that can be of serious concern. As a traveller, and as many people are listening, I'm sure will be, is there any way of kind of finding out more about how to travel with a conscience and, and perhaps which companies are doing good work in this area? I haven't done enough research on individual companies to be able to endorse any in particular, but I do think it's really well worth doing your homework before you do this sort of travel. There are some really good websites out there on responsible tourism, and I think that's a good thing to look up because 
Unfortunately, the ecotourism label doesn't always mean the most environmentally friendly product. It sometimes might be tourism based around nature, for example, in a rainforest or a marine area. But really, if it was really good ecotourism, it would be developed in a way that was in conjunction with the local community, ensuring they have a good livelihood alternative to extracting resources from that natural environment. Not all ecotourism does that. But I would just do my homework and look up the responsible tourism websites, look up reviews from other travellers about their experiences, not only rely on com what companies are saying themselves about their products, and reading a bit more deeply, preparing for travel overseas. Responsible tourism awards are given annually to some of the best companies around the world that are doing, uh, that are providing good travel experiences that are environmentally and socially responsible. They recommend some places in each region of the world, so I, I'd recommend looking at what their award-winning properties and tours have been for the last few years. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 8.55am. Yarra City Council presents the 6th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018. Celebrating live music in Yarra. Featuring the likes of Black Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer. Penny Eichinger at the Yarra Hotel. Queering the pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas. A hip-hop music showcase, Girls to the Front at the Laundry and much, much more. Ten days in July with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra. For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a 3CR supporter. Yeah, the sounds of winter. And uh, just before that, we were uh, hearing from Professor Regina Scavens from Massey University, uh, professor and co-director of Pacific Research and Policy Center in the School of People, Environment and Planning. And I just love the positioning of people there first. I mean, what, <laughs> what a great university department. And, uh, of course, Regina mentioned checking out Responsible Tourism Awards. And, uh, yeah, what a good idea if you're going looking to travel. Definitely, definitely making impact, especially within some of those countries which have a lot of travel, just the sheer amount of erosion stuff. Like um, recently yes, they put that's a... that's right, the impact on the environment. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of awful stories as no, well. Um, so this was a little bit of a, a I mean, it's good to know there's some good things, but we must keep our eye on the ball as far as all the... Bit of a taster, yeah. Um, yeah. I know Stonehenge recently had a conveyor belt put in, and it was really controversial, but it's stopping the earth being eroded because there were so many people walking around it and trampling yes. it down, so... Yeah, for Good sure. To keep conscious about it, I suppose. It is. It is. Yeah. So, and I just want to welcome Eidwin because, uh, yeah, <laughs> you've, you're contributing greatly today and yeah. it, it's wonderful to have you here. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much, Judith. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have... Um, our um, next segment. Yeah. Um, no, we're going to come up to that in a few minutes. Um, just before that, we heard Common People by Pulp, which uh, was in a little segment of mine. So we're going to listen to that, but... Up next, we've actually got Miranda Kay, um, so we'll get to that in just a few minutes. We will, but I think we've got some music first. Yes, I think we've got some music first. And it's <laughs> a black rock band, yeah. which I, I just have to I just have to fess up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I saw them last uh, Thursday night at the... <gasps> 
Yes, at the Northcote Social Club. I bought the T-shirt. It was a bit cool to come in T-shirt this morning. <laughs> you know, I would have been, you know, rocking it around the studio. But uh, they're an emerging band, and they're from, you know, West Arnhem region in the Northern Territories, top end, and, um, and they're from a, you know, deep musical family. Uh, incorporate traditional and contemporary sounds with with rock singing in in their own language, uh, Kinwinjuku and English, and uh, so we're going to hear Bini Kumbuk. Cool, and we'll get to that in just a minute. 3CR needs you. Fight for your mic and donate to 3CR's annual radio thon. 3CR Radio Thon 2018. Fight for your mic. Call For long-term detained refugees. Sunday 17 June from 10 a.m. This event is organized to show solidarity and support for refugees detained long-term by the Australian government. 
So come ride your bike or join us at the gathering spots from 10am at Coburg Town Hall, 11 o'clock at Princess Park, 12 o'clock at Melbourne Museum or 2 o'clock at Albert Park. You can also look up online at rideforrefugees2018.wordpress.com. Ride for Refugees is a 3CR supporter. And uh, we are supporting refugees here, and really important to keep that in mind all the time um, as we go forward into um, into June and, um, yeah, the rest of the month. We just heard Bene Gumbu from Black Rock Band, and uh, they were so fantastic last Thursday at the Northcote Social Club. Really love their work. Check it out on- online. You can go to the website and hear more, and we'll hear some more of the- them later. But right now, we're going to be speaking with Miranda Kay. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but last week, the Attorney General, Christian Porter, proposed a merger of the Family Court of Australia and the Federal Circuit Court. And it's going to create a new super court to be called, it's a mouthful, the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia. Now, the Attorney General says that the merger will address delays and inefficiencies um, but not everyone agrees with that. Miranda Kay is a senior lecturer in family law at the University of Technology, Sydney. She is concerned that, that the proposed family supercourt will not save time or result in better judgments. I caught up with her on Monday and asked her if the announcement of the proposed merger had caught her by surprise. The timing of the announcement took me by surprise, given that the previous Attorney General has commissioned a fairly comprehensive review of the Family Law Act by the Australian Law Reform Commission. I think it's surprising that this announcement was made during that review. Right, so that review is in progress right now. Yes, and it's going to report in, I think it's March of 2019. This announcement seems to have superseded that review. Well, parts of it, because although the Attorney-General says that the Australian Law Reform Commission is only looking at so-called substantive law and not the process, it's actually impossible to divide the two. You can't really look at one without the other. So how are family law matters currently dealt with by the courts? At the moment, there are two courts that would deal with family law matters. The Family Court of Australia and there's the Federal Circuit Court. And just to explain the Federal Circuit Court, that was actually previously known as the Federal Magistrates Court, and that started in 2000, and it was renamed the Federal Circuit Court in 2013, but it's actually the same. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a Liberal government in 2000 who started the Federal Magistrates Court. There was some opposition at the time that it would cause confusion, increase costs, and it was ridiculous having two courts dealing with the same matters. And that's essentially come to pass. The Attorney General is right that there should not be two separate courts dealing with family law matters. It's just how that merger takes place. Right. And I think to present this, the merger of the two courts, which I think is sensible to have one entry into the family law system, but to present this merger as something that's going to reduce delays, I think is disingenuous. And why do you think that? Because more resources are required in the system. Whether you call it the Family Court, the Federal Circuit Court, or the new 
Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia, if you don't have more judges and you don't have more family consultants in the system and more staff in the system, there's going to be the same backlog. And so what kind of cases does the Family Court of Australia currently deal with? Because I think you said it was about 13% of cases go to the Family Court of Australia. 13% of filings of family law matters are in the family court and I think it's 80, that means 87% are in the federal circuit court. There's a kind of protocol for how those cases are assigned to the family court. A rough rule of thumb I guess is that the more complex cases go to the family court. So the family court actually deals with many of the property matters that are in dispute, particularly high asset property matters. But in terms of children's matters, it deals with the most complex cases. Many family law cases involve violence or allegations of violence. Really complex cases where maybe you've got allegations of family violence, child sexual abuse, alcohol, mental health issues would normally be heard by the family court. Those cases would require a fair bit of expertise and experience. Absolutely, and family court judges have that expertise, and there's actually a requirement in the Family Law Act, because Section 22 says that they have to be of a certain character to be suitable to be family court judges. When the review was announced last year, the review of the family court, a former Chief Justice, Alastair Nicholson, said the delays are actually caused by government failure to appoint new judges. I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. Yes, I mean, as judges have retired, the replacements for those judges have been much lower than you would hope. So there are a lot less judges in the family court than there were. Chief justices over the years, since Alistair Nicholson and Diana Bryant, have been asking for more resources. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Miranda Kay, a senior lecturer in family law at the University of Technology, Sydney, about the proposed merger of the Family Court of Australia and the Federal Circuit Court. Lack of resources has dogged the Family Court of Australia since its inception in the mid-1970s, but it seems this new proposal will not address that, and there are other concerns. Here's Miranda Kay again. And one of the main concerns that I have and probably other people have in the system is in relation to the appellate division of the family court. It's called the full court of the family court and it's essentially an appeal division. It hears appeals from both the family court and from the federal circuit court. So appeals from single family court judges would go to the full court but appeals from the Federal Circuit Court would also go to the full court. And usually three judges would hear an appeal in the full court, but there are circumstances, particularly where it's an appeal from a Federal Circuit Court, where one judge can sit. So when you say the full court there, you're talking about the full court of the family court? Yes, it's the full court of the family court, but they hear appeals from both the family court and the Federal Circuit Court. What's likely to be the outcome for families with this proposed merger? The hope is that this is going to reduce delays, but I can't see how without further resources given to the court. I think the Attorney General has recently announced he's going to give $4 million, but basically that's for rebranding forms, you know, rewriting rules so that there's one process. The Attorney General has said that family court judges, once they retire, are not going to be replaced. 
and any appointments would be to what he's called Division 2 of the new court, which is effectively the Federal Circuit Court. And there may well be judges appointed who are not experts in any way in family law. It's going to dilute the knowledge and the experience that's, that's available. Yes, it is. And particularly of the full court, you've got a full court of the appeal division, which has vast legal knowledge, vast institutional knowledge, and it is unclear, we need more details, about how they're going to be used in the new system. The new system will be that appeals from the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia will go to the Federal Court. That is a court that does not deal with family law matters at all. And I think there's a perception that family law isn't real law and that anyone can judge it. And I don't think that's true. The family judges who have knowledge about domestic violence, sexual abuse, are, are real experts. And piloting in a federal court judge for an appeal on a complex family law matter I think is doing a great disservice to parents in Australia. We will be losing all that knowledge and it's not going to be replaced. That is the eventual upshot of these reforms. I mean obviously these federal circuit judges are dealing with family law matters from day to day and they are gaining expertise. There's no doubt that many of them are brilliant but you are going to lose that appeal division you're going to lose the people who really know about the complex matters within the family court. It sounds to me like the government's really trying to get rid of the family court of Australia. I think that's probably a fair comment. Certainly over time, when the last family court judge retires, you won't have what we know as as family court judges. And I think Australia is renowned throughout many Western democracies for having this specialist family court. And it is not a perfect creature at all. There are many problems within the family court. But I think having a one-stop shop for family law actually makes it superior to many other jurisdictions. I'm just wondering to what extent the government is pandering to Pauline Hanson on this. I don't know. Her deal has been done with One Nation. I know that Women's Legal Service Australia have been asking whether such a deal has been done. I do know that Pauline Hanson has made an announcement that she's very proud of the role that One Nation has played. But whether there's any deal or whether they're pandering to her, I don't know. It might just be what the government is doing is also aligns with what she would like done too. If people who are listening are concerned about this announcement, is there anything they can do to make their concerns felt? Well, it has to pass the Senate. Legislation is required for this to happen. So I guess they should start lobbying their senators. I know there are already some Labour senators who have expressed concern about this. Anyone can make a submission to the Australian Law Reform Commission. I think that the they, submission date has closed. There'll be a next round, don't worry. Perhaps they're now going to do a discussion paper so they're going to refine the issues. So I think it's in November of okay. this year. And so there'll be another round in which people can make submissions. But the best thing to do, I think, at the moment is to lobby your senator. And uh, I'll be on the phone, <laughs> that's for sure. That was Miranda Kay, a senior lecturer in family law at the University of Technology, Sydney, sharing her concerns about the proposed merger of the two courts. And uh, 
I think the name of the proposed new court says it all, the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia. So interesting that Family Court comes second, for one thing, and very worried. I mean, the Family Court is an important tradition in Australia. started in 1970, around 75, 76, it came into being. It, before that, I think a lot of the divorce cases and those kinds of settlements were done in, by the states, and um, a lot of people held off because this was a new law and it was just one year separation and you could then file for divorce, rather, whereas in the States it would take a couple of years and it was the fault of all these kinds of things, very complicated as you'd understand. But a lot of people just waited for this law to come through before filing for divorce. So I think they had something like 23, you know, a huge number of cases in the first couple of years and then it absolutely doubled and in a way, they've never really caught up in, in terms of, you know, getting on top of the need. And in the meantime, resources available to the family court have never been adequate, as we heard just a moment ago. So um, it's probably worth looking into and finding out more about the Family Court of Australia and its history. And you, you can do that by Googling on the web. I was quite fascinated because, you know, coming from another different country, I wasn't here. I wasn't in Australia. I've been here a long time, but I wasn't here for some of those changes. So very interesting. Anyway, not good news for families, it seems. So do get on to your senator. Fight for your mic. 3CR Radiothon 2018. Fight for your mic. The sound of the weapon called a microphone. Bring the revolution on. Broadcasting to the early morning. June 4th to the 17th. Fight for your mic. Rebel music on the dance floor. Tell me what you're fighting for because this DJ gonna keep you alive. Forget about your troubles and your nine to five with the rhythm of the pump, the pump, the pump. Yarra City Council presents the 6th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2018. Celebrating live music in Yarra. Featuring the likes of Black Scott in Go Gaga at the Gasometer, Penny Arkinger at the Yarra Hotel, Queer in the Pitch with Mama Alto at Hairs and Hyenas, a hip-hop music showcase Girls to the Front at the Laundry and much, much more. Ten days in July with over 30 events at venues across the city of Yarra. For more information and tickets, go to leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. The Sounds of Winter, a 3CR supporter. marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Conjateme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R.net. A 3CR supporter. Hi, 
site for long term detained refugees sunday 17 june from 10 am this event is organized to show solidarity and support for refugees detained long term by the australian government So come ride your bike or join us at the gathering spots from 10am at Kobeck Town Hall, 11 o'clock at Princess Park, 12 o'clock at Melbourne Museum or 2 o'clock at Albert Park. You can also look up online at rideforrefugees2018.wordpress.com. Ride for Refugees is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast, Wednesday Breakfast this morning, and it's been great having your company, a bit cool but not too bad out there, and uh, we're joined now by uh, Dr. Meredith Doig, who's the Secretary of the Reason Party and President of the Rational Society of Australia, and she's going to talk to us about the chaplaincy program in schools. So, um, yeah, Meredith, uh, sorry, yes, Meredith, are you there? I am here. Oh, Good wonderful. Morning. Good morning. I, I'm sorry, we've just been, um, uh, you know, trying to keep, keep warm in here and keep people up to date with what's going on in the street outside. So I'm wondering, oh. I've got a very important question to start with. Are you riding your motorbike today? Mm, no, I must admit I'm a bit of a fair weather bikey these days. Are you? I see. Okay. <laughs> well, well, nice and warm. <laughs> yeah. So, so thank you so much, Meredith, for for coming on the show this morning. And uh, we've been Pleasure. quite concerned about um, you know what's happening with this chaplaincy program, in particular the fact that more money is going into it by the government. So. Um, I'm interested in in your perspective, uh, and will you be speaking uh, from the point of view of the Reason Party, or from the Rational Society, or or both? <laughs> well, from the Rationalist Society, in this case, um, we are um, uh, pulling together a challenge to the chaplaincy program, and. Uh, like you, I think we are concerned about the extension of this program. Not so much about the um, the work that gets done in schools. Um, a lot of that work is done is is really useful work, and schools need um, pastoral support. They need people to work with students, with staff, with parents, even uh, to cover off difficulties that are being faced on the emotional level or the social level. It's really, really important work. So we're not saying that the work is not important, but what our argument, and I think a lot of the listeners um, would be concerned about, is that the federal government has explicitly and overtly discriminated against a whole range of people in being eligible to do that work. That is, they're saying that only uh, religiously oriented people are eligible to do this work, which is ridiculous. I mean, we know 
that there are suitably qualified and interested people who could help schools in doing this really, really important work. And there's absolutely no reason why they should be only religious. Some religious people yes. uh, might do this work really well, um, and as long as they don't try to impose their religious views on others, that's fine. Do we? Uh, sorry, do we know? No reason why it should be only religious people. Yeah, and do we know which uh, groups, which religious groups, have particularly taken up the option of of the chap- being a chaplain in a school? Which, uh, who are the enthusiastic uptakers of yeah. this? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question, and, and, I, and I don't know the answer to it. I don't have any statistics about, you know, whether it's the Mormons or the whatever. But what we do have is a list of the religious organisations who are uh, who who have been um, nominated by the. Victorian government to be the people who can uh, recruit and train and manage. Um, oh, I see. And, and do you, do you uh, so s- people like Access Ministries, uh, CHIPS, which stands for Christians Helping in Primary School, so you can imagine, uh, Crossway Baptist Church, Discovery Church, the Doncaster Church of Christ, Generate Ministries, Scripture Union, Torquay Christian Fellowship. Here's one, Youth for Christ Incorporated. So you can get a sense from that list that they tend to be on the evangelical side of Christianity. Yes, that's what that's what I'm getting from from what you're saying. And I guess mm. when we start looking at our schools and public schools in particular, we would have people from all different faiths. So there would be a place for people of all a lot of different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, and even you know a broader ethical or philosophical background to go into schools. It seems incredibly narrow at the moment. But what you said a few minutes ago was. Um, you know, that the, there's work, important work to be done. Who do you think should be doing this, the work that you've described of supporting young people? Well, there are people who uh, do social work, who do youth work, for example. There so so are, is this a cheap uh, option for the government? Is it like, you know, the, these uh, organizations aren't spent, are they're, they're pretty cheap to get, or what, how would you see that? Yeah, 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 well, good point. Good point. It's probably the government saying, ah, well, we can get away with um, exploiting people who are otherwise uh, interested in doing this sort of work, but, you know, religious people um, can sometimes see it as a vocation and they um, allow themselves to be exploited. Uh-huh. So... Um like how many we're talking now across the state schools across the state and public schools mainly uh look off the top of my head i don't have those figures to hand but it's in the hundreds i uh, see across the state right it, look this is this is um a an important uh program it's one that school there's been a, a recent evaluation of the program that is across um, Australia, not just Victoria. And uh, that evaluation does have some statistics in it uh, because it's not just government schools that have 
chaplains. It's also um, Catholic, the Catholic system and the independent system. Yes. But our concern, of course, is with the government schools, with public schools, because they are meant to be, uh, indeed, that they are meant to be secular. They are meant to be non-religious. They are meant to be welcoming of all children, be they from a religious background or a non-religious background. And this is a... On the face of it, it's just openly, overtly discriminatory. Yes, and it's just extraordinary that they've been able to get away with it for so long. And they've only been able to get away with it by finding loopholes or way, you know, workarounds. Yes. I'm wondering what students are going to be disadvantaged by, by this, uh, these chaplains coming in and the, the funding for this. What are going to be disadvantaged? What, sorry, well, which, which students, which students are likely to be disadvantaged? by schools, you know, having the chaplaincy program? Are there some students to be left out here whose needs will not be met? It it really depends on how the chaplain carries out their work. Um, The description of the work of a chaplain says that they must not proselytise. They must not uh, bring a religious element into the work in the school. If they do that, if they honour that requirement, then you can imagine that their work would be available to everybody and no child would necessarily be disadvantaged. It's only if they bring uh, a religious element, that is, you know, let's assume that they are Christian, um, if they bring their Christian sensibilities to a school that might have a whole range of children from different uh, religious backgrounds or no religious background at all, uh, then those children will be disadvantaged. Yes, and I guess, you know, who's monitoring the work that they ah, do? Is it a matter? That's a good question. <laughs> I mean, how do we yes. know, yeah, that, that uh, they aren't proselytizing, for example? Well, uh, that really is a good question, and the answer is nobody knows because, well, individual schools or school principals may know, but there is no um, central collection of complaints about proselytising. Right. There used to be, but now the way that the federal government has uh, required the program to be implemented, they have said that there will be no central collection of such complaints and that if a parent, for example, has a complaint about uh, a chaplain in their child's school proselytising, then they have to sort it out at school level. I see. And so nobody, nobody across the state knows how many times this happens. I mean, there's been so much critique of this uh, of this program, the chaplaincy program. I was amazed that more money was put into it. I mean, what what's the political interest in this program? Do you think? Oh, I think it's pretty straightforward. It's it's a way of um, further normalising a religious philosophy uh, through 
think that's pretty overt. But who is the government appealing to, I think? In, in, uh, I guess that's what I maybe I didn't ask that very well, but, you know, who, whose interests are being served by this oh, right. in, in so the government, government point uh-huh. of view? Yeah. Yeah, who, 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 who might change their vote because of this? Well, yes. I it, 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 I I'm not sure that people would change their vote, but I think um, there are the conservative elements within the uh, federal coalition, um, and, and it's, it's sort of payback. It's, it's um, what, flying the flag for the conservative religiously oriented elements within the federal coalition party. And of course, in Victoria, we've seen, and this is really worrying, um, a more or less a, a takeover or an intrusion into the uh, Liberal Party here in Victoria by uh, the Mormon faith. Yeah, I saw that report actually in the newspaper just recently. Yeah, so I was rather surprised. Uh, is takeover too strong a word, do you think? Well, it's not, they're not, um, 50, 50% or more. No. Yes. <laughs> not yet. Uh, yes. but there is a significant minority who now have positions of power and authority within the Victorian Liberal Party. And I suspect that, you know, those people who might count themselves small L liberal, that is. Yes. Um, just slightly right of centre, perhaps. Um, they might be feeling uh, really unhappy about this development. Right. And, and you know, Victoria, in, in my experience, and I've, I'm in my 60s now, so I've seen a, a few mm-hmm. um, elections come and go yes. in Victoria, and it always seems to me that Victoria has been a sort of vaguely left of centre, right of centre. Well, you know, that's, that's my impression having moved here just, uh, you know, two and a half years ago. Um, that, oh, okay. Yeah. And moved, moved from where? From Adelaide, mm, South from Australia. Adelaide. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. Um, well, I am in the electorate of Batman, sort of which adds, I'm in the electorate of Batman, which adds to that impression, I guess. Ah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Not all of that. But in any case, let's, let's assume that that's possibly, um, you know, a, a realistic reflection of, uh, politics in Victoria. I can't see how the Liberal Party in Victoria could imagine that a lurch to the right um, and a lurch to um, strongly religiously oriented uh, leaders in the organisational wing, how that would be appealing to voters in Victoria. I mean, I would have thought the opposite. Yes, I mean, I, I agree with you too, and this is why I find it so surprising. I mean, but it's very much out of the, you know, the Christian right playbook in the United States in some ways, where in, uh, you know, conservative evangelical groups endeavored to align themselves with a mainstream party and, and get control. And uh, so, you know, it sounds like we're seeing a similar kind of phenomenon happening here in Australia, although we do, I, I have to say this because Tim Jones is in the room here with us, and I know we have our own homegrown version of religious right politics. But, uh, yeah, it's just uh, so similar to what's going on in the United States. Meredith Doig, it's been fantastic hearing from you here on 3CR this morning on Wednesday Breakfast. 
first. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to add around the chaplaincy program before we, we sign out? Uh, look, if, um, for listeners who are interested in following uh, the Rationalist Society programs, we have a little daily newsletter that people can sign up to. Oh, yes. Um, if you go to RSA Daily, R-S-A-D-A-I-L-Y, rsadaily.rationalist.com.au, and uh, we try to keep people up to date on a daily basis with... Um, so you're follow, following these developments closely? And, yeah, and these keeping... sorts of developments. Anything that, that's of interest to people who are, you know, who would count themselves secular, humanists or rationalists. Right. So we welcome more subscribers. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for that. And uh, we'll put something on the website for you about that. And uh, thank you for making time to talk to us this morning. My pleasure to talk to you, Judith. Okay. Bye-bye.
And that was, again, the, the Black Rock Band, uh, fantastic music. That was uh, the song Struggle, and it's one of their new releases. So fabulous to check them out. Just check them out. They're really great. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. It's Jim Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And uh, in the studio with us now is Tim Jones, Dr. Tim Jones from Latrobe University, a cultural historian. He keeps an eye on the Christian right, among many, many other things. So, And I think you're vice president of the Lesbian and Gay Archive. Is that, <laughs> am I, am I over-promoting? No, it's nice to sneak it in. The algo needs as much promotion as it can get. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Good morning, Tim, and welcome. Thanks for coming in. What was it like out there? Was it cold or was it not too bad? Uh, it was a fresh morning. Fresh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So um, I think you're going to talk a little bit about the Religious Freedom Review, but uh, who knows what's happened overnight? <laughs> anyway, uh, everyone's still waiting. It's been a it's been a funny year. I spoke earlier this year about uh, the the politics of the Religious Freedom Review, following on from the marriage equality politics of last year. And perhaps there was a, a readjustment of the place of religion in public life in Australia that was required. Um, uh, the government called a um, comm- commissioned uh, an inquiry, uh, and uh, it, sat, it, it had thousands more responses than uh, that they were expecting. Right. Uh, any idea what who those responses were from? From all kinds of people, uh, right. from mm-hmm. institutions, organisations, individuals. Um, but I think they had like 20 times more um, respondents than they were expecting. Right. And uh, they, yeah, it, so it took them much longer to deal with than they, were, they, they thought. Then they submitted the report to the government and the government's been sitting on it. So we want to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. So it's a funny position to be in. Um, I thought it'd be good to maybe talk a little about the history of religious freedom and discrimination in Australia. Yeah, great. To put some context on what's happening. We, I mean, we know that one of the recommendations of the commission uh, is to bring religious protection, to enhance religious protections in Australia. Um, but that, that sounds a bit odd, I think, to, to most yes, of I your listeners. We, we already had that. Actually, well, Australia has a race discrimination, federal race discrimination legislation, and sex discrimination legislation, but there is no federal religious discrimination protection. And partly this is due to Australia's history of uh, Australia's religious history um, being a fairly monocultural Christian society in which there were two major churches, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. Uh, And so uh, the founders of this Australia's constitution didn't think Australia needed 
religious protections. Are there any other religions that might have thought? <laughs> yeah. And there was a sort of de facto understanding between uh, the leaders of the two big churches and governments that if any legislation came up where religious rights were uh, conflicted, rather than have uh, a constitutional document, they would uh, just a sort of mates kind of gentle, gentleman's agreement. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, so in fact, and, and this is what happened and, and functioned uh, through the 20th century. So, when the federal government began to introduce funding for schools and various other kinds of um, things. Uh, the, like a state premier and the Catholic Archbishop and the Anglican Archbishop might just get together and go like, oh, what kinds of exemptions from discrimination legislation is required for us to go forward with these policies? It was just a sort of behind-closed-doors quiet conversation about what exemptions were required. So religious freedom in Australia uh, functioned not through a positive statement like a Bill of Rights or federal legislation, but through a system of uh, exemptions from other legislation. So it's a bit of a piecemeal approach that's been cobbled together uh, right. over a 100 years. Mm-hmm. And it's not very, very satisfactory, and it's particularly not, not very satisfactory um, as the religious co- uh, composition of Australia has changed. So uh, Australia is no longer a predominantly... Christian society. Um, well, that's not quite true. It's probably still predominantly Christian, but the largest growing um, religious group in Australia, according to the last census, is non, non-religious. And, right. So and not non-religious at all. Mm. So, so no, no religion mm. is the largest growing category in Australia. I mean, this, this is interesting, reflecting on the conversation about chaplains and schools. Yeah, exactly. Now. exactly. Yeah. So I think uh, if it hasn't already, no religion is about to overtake Roman Catholicism as the largest religious group in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an increasing population of Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Mormons. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, so the religious composition of Australia has changed uh, and expectations about how um, expressions and manifestations, which is the language that human rights law uses, manifestations of religious belief in, in public, um, are a bit confused and we need to have a discussion about how people of religion should manifest uh, their beliefs in public, whether it's um, Christian bakers, the notorious Christian bakers, yes. um, or uh, Muslim women wearing hijab, uh, and uh, what, what, is an appropriate, what, are, what are appropriate limitations on expressions of religious belief. So that's, one, that's an important uh, question that we as a society need to consider and thoughtfully consider. Do you, do you think the review of religious freedom is going to address these things? Well, it's certainly going to recommend um, that Australia gets federal legislation protecting religious freedoms or, or uh, uh, outlawing religious discrimination. Um, that has been recommended by the Human Rights Commission and, and other bodies uh, for the last decade and, and by international bodies like the UN. Right. Um, so yes. that's not... That's not a surprise, and it's a bit... Out, it's a bit um, Overdue? Overdue, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm. Um, but, exact, but how this will uh, fit into the cultural politics in the aftermath of uh, marriage equality uh, is less clear to me, observing what's going on here, and how much it will engage with the other areas of religious freedom uh, that have been contested and disputed, such as, um, you know, halal food certification... Um, you know, the, the government had no problems lim- limiting 
expression of religious belief when it came to women wearing hijab in parliament. Um, but are they are they but are they going to make the same kinds of are they going to have the same confidence to limit the expression of Christian belief? So there's a there's a bit of a disparity in politicians and, and public's sense of what's fair in terms of limiting Christian belief versus Muslim belief versus other religious beliefs. So I think this just shows how um, inchoate, how, how young and unformed our thinking about the expression of religion in public is at the moment. Yeah, and I guess our ability to have a good dialogue about it as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's been very difficult to, um, you know, people, people uh, have strong feelings about this, um, but there haven't been good, particularly good frameworks for, mm-hmm. for the expression of these uh, conversations. Yeah, I, I read a, a paper last week um, suggesting that that it's false, uh, not accurate to suggest that Christians are persecuted, and it's even insulting to suggest that Christians are persecuted in Australia. I think it was Robin Whitaker who mm. wrote, wrote that paper. Uh, I mean, I ha- I don't have any sense that Christians are persecuted. I found, found it uh, odd that some people are claiming this. Yeah, I think it's an expression of of a change in public opinion, though. Like, it's not, uh, as, as Robin's article clearly pointed out, it's a bit offensive to say that you're being persecuted when people are, in people in Christian history and in other parts of the world are genuinely being persecuted. Right now. Uh, right now, exactly. Mm. Um, so, uh, it, but, what, but what that is, I think, a, an expression of is a discomfort with a changing status of Christianity in Australia. There is a sense... I think that uh, perhaps this is uh, an odd thing to say following on from the chaplaincy conversation <laughs> that you just had, um, but there is a sense that in which some of the privilege that uh, Christianity, in particular Protestant Christianity in Australia, has had in the past uh, is no longer seen as being as justified. Right. So so the fact that you know we have more people now who are sorry, um, not Christian at all, uh, and uh, the fact that we have a lot of other groups coming in means that, um, you know, again, there's not, I guess, the dominance in numbers and that that could be a threat. So people are trying to entrench their position somehow. Would that be yeah. a reasonable thing to say? Yeah, I think so. I think it's been... I. I'm always a bit optimistic about things. I know. I think it's wonderful, Tim. I think it's fantastic. Uh, And I thought uh, that when the majority of uh, voters uh, affirmed um, marriage equality uh, in opposition to the the predominantly conservative religious uh, no campaign, that that might have exposed... Uh, you know the overrepresentation of conservative religious voices in our political system, um, and I naively thought uh, that that might um, delegitimate those voices. And I was genuinely surprised to see uh, this resurgence of right-wing conservative Christian political action, like the you know the, the Mormon and, and and conservative religious right. Uh, resurgence in the Victorian Liberal Party is just, I find, quite bewildering. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I, you know, I thought that the, the vote for marriage equality was going to actually change things, and I've been really surprised. You know, again, the, the increased, fund, increased funding mm-hmm. for the chaplaincy program, which has, you know, been 
it's been criticized by from so many different people it's not not criticized on the point necessarily of just uh, you know its religious connections particularly with evangelical christianity it's been also criticized as just not an effective program in that you don't have the skill people are going in without the skills to actually work with young people mm. you know it's this kind of thing so i i thought that that program was on its way out mm-hmm. and now what we see is a, almost a, you know increase in funding and a resurgence so we do, yeah. I mean, it is interesting, like you say, and uh, and I'm kind of perplexed, like you are. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is this is one of the central questions in my research uh, that I, that I'm doing at the tribe in a number of different areas, is uh, thinking about why, uh, thinking about our lack of uh, articulate uh, perspectives on religion in Australia. Why do we think if there are pastoral needs in schools that people that a chaplaincy program is the most effective way to do that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, well, it isn't. You know, it isn't. Uh, but so mm. people have to be religious to do it, but they're not allowed to, uh, not allowed to express religious beliefs no. in the schools. Like it's I very, know. very confusing. It's a bit of a no-brainer, really. I mean, you know, it's not going to happen. I don't. I mean, that person is there. Just the, their, who they represent in itself speaks volumes. Mm. Before we even get to the classroom, yeah, you know, exactly. th- their presence in the school uh, makes already a statement. Yep. Uh, and I wonder how much it would cost to put a social worker or a youth worker well, a in schools. More, a, a lot more. A lot more. And I think this is just a cheap way of pretending that you're providing the service when yeah. you're not at the same time with the benefit of pandering to, I've used that word pander twice this mm. morning, I don't know why, but anyway, um, a particular, as you say, you know, a religious right uh, who seem to be gaining in power mm. rather than losing. Mm. Even in the Liberal Party, when we think about, you know, some... I mean, the Liberal Party has done some very interesting and and progressive policy work in the past. Mm. So, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it is yeah, quite particularly surprising. in this state, yeah. Yes, particularly in Victoria. Yeah, so it is surprising. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but uh, one thing that does uh, reassure me is the the, the demographic that that is that has strong uh, conservative religious beliefs is small and is not growing. Um, so How that, do you know that, Tim? Ah, uh, you know, social research into religion in Australia. <laughs> right. So, so yes. Okay. So it is. So there's, but there's an imbalance, isn't there? So the group is not growing, but the amount of power they seem to be gaining. Yeah. So they've uh, over the last what, three decades, they've been had a self-conscious strategy to enter into the political parties and to influence. Um, the political process and policy and so on, and they've been quite successful uh, at that. Um, but we're talking about the, the population of Australia that would support those views would be 10, 20% perhaps. Yes. Um, it's not a large voting block uh, which is going to come out in support of them. It's probably less than 20%. Mm. Um, Whereas and so so if they are successful in taking over the political parties, I wonder if I wonder if this is a bit of a Marxist strategy <laughs> of, <laughs> of, yeah. of waiting for some kind of catastrophic failure yeah. of it so, all. So, well, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm kind of thinking of a Gramscian strategy in which uh, the the Christian right in the states, in particular, was mm. is, uh, we need to we need to grab the culture. Yes, we need we need to get control of the culture and and ran from everything from the dog catcher. You know, at the local level. <laughs> mm. Well, that's true, and I think I think that is what they're doing here. Yeah, it um, seems to be exactly. It seems to be parallel to me. But I just can't. I I struggle to imagine that they'll be able to actually influence popular opinion 
like I think I think what is needed is for other other people who may not may not have as articulate beliefs about their uh, religion, about their conscience, about their worldview. Mm. Um, the, the challenge for people who are disturbed by the resurgence of the religious right, even after marriage equality, is to think about and grow to articulate their own worldviews and beliefs, because I think that's the space in which they have been successful in Australia. Yeah. Not like in America, where there is a larger body of people who hold those beliefs, but mm-hmm. there is a passive, a very large passive population in Australia who doesn't think about what we believe. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of people felt that, you know, an important battle had been won by that vote. And may, I mean, I think at the time people were saying, you know, you just can't sit back and relax now. Mm. You know, this is the beginning of continuing to advocate. But I imagine also people are tired. You know, they've been campaigning. They've been campaigning the campaign a long time. This is a big boost that we have marriage equality. Fantastic. But, you know, there's no end to it, is it? One has to continually be vigilant in these matters because things go back. Mm. Yeah, and these are uh, the conservative religious right are people who are motivated by very strong metaphysical beliefs that, yes. uh, you know, the future of humanity depends on uh, you know, on these social policies, uh, particularly around sex and sexuality. That's been their, you know, their, their central formation for the last... 50 years almost. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's not something that's going to change quickly with one uh, one postal survey. No, it's not. It's not. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your comments and your insights around these issues. And um, I think we're going over now. We're, we're going to actually move to hear some music. Excellent. And it's Anwar Brahim, which who I just love. And uh, the album is called The Astounding Eyes of Rita. And it's um, based on a poem by the great Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. And uh, the song, I think, is Rita and the Rifle. But the music is absolutely gorgeous. So let's, let's head to the Middle East. I'm <laughs> from Tunisia and France. And, uh, yeah, Anwar Brahim. <laughs>
and that was um, the beautiful sounds of Anwar Brahim, and the song was The Astounding Eyes of Rita. Bra- sorry, Anwar Brahim, The Astounding Eyes of Rita, and I love love the sound of the oud. Now, if you've um, you just tuned in to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, I'm going to encourage you to, to tune in again tonight at 5.30 because there's going to be a show called The Renegades, Renegades Economists. So I don't think you're going to want to miss it. They're going to look at, um, you know, critiquing taxation policy, economic behavior, and it'll be a great discussion. So, yeah, do tune in tonight at 5.30. Today, we've had lots of great guests. We have, we have. We've had um, Meredith from the Rational Society. Yes, Mer- Dr. Meredith Doig, that's Meredith, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and talking about the chaplaincy program. Yep, that was great. Uh, earlier in the show, we've also had um, Regina. From yeah, Regina Scavens, yeah, yeah. Massey University. Talking about travelling and responsible tourism, which was mm, really great. Cool. Yeah. And we had um, Miranda Kay with us. Yes, that was fabulous. I mean, not good news, but fabulous to get more detail about what's going on with the proposed merger of the Family Court of Australia. Great to hear about that. Yeah, yeah. and the the circuit, federal circuit court. Yeah. Yeah, and we finally had uh, we've had music throughout this uh, segment. We're from the band. Uh, the Black Rock Band, as well as just Yay. recently the last track, which yes. was really quite inspired. So, yes, yeah. and we had an excellent critique right at the beginning of the show, Edwin. Thank you so much. And, of course, uh, Tim, Tim Jones, has come on this morning with uh, yeah, his, his insights into what's going on, uh, especially around the Religious Freedom Review. So, uh, well, thank you for joining us this morning. See you. Yeah, see you soon. Keep warm. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. 